This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, you're listening to Good Things, the show where we speak to good people who are doing good things. I'm Dashran Johan. The Anti-Death Penalty Asia Network is a regional network of organizations and individuals committed to working towards the abolition of the death penalty in the Asia-Pacific region. Joining me on the show today to share what this organization is all about and also his personal journey a little bit is Dobby Chu. He's the executive coordinator at the Anti-Death Penalty Asia Network, also known as ADPAN. Welcome to the show, Dobby. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, Dobby, what is ADPAN all about? Uh, so ADPAN is a network of members of people who believe in the abolition of death penalty across Asia-Pacific. We have mem- around 44 members in 19 Asia-Pacific countries. Uh, most of them are lawyers or they're NGOs themselves, or some of them are just individuals who strongly believe in the cause. Uh, for example, we have a member who used to, who is from Japan, don't stay in Japan anymore, uh, but he used to be a victim of an assault and he almost died because of an assault and he works a lot from the victim's perspective, why people want justice. So we have a very interesting amalgamation of people. Um, and what we do usually in the past is we tend to try and find ways to work between each of our members in different countries so they can collaborate. Uh, if you see what we do recently, like in Nagendran's case, it's a lot of collaboration between our headquarters in Kuala Lumpur and our members in Singapore. So we do this kind of collaboration and we convene everyone once every two years to have a meeting, to discuss on issues, to do advocacy with government, to kind of share the government from the region itself, what are our experiences with the death penalty, what can be done better. Uh, so that's kind of a bit of what we do. Right. And what is your role specifically? Um, how did you um, come, come, come across ADPAN? Why did you join ADPAN? And what's your role as an executive coordinator? Um, Let's start with how I came to AppPen, I guess. Right. Uh, so I used to be with Swaram before this, and when I decided I, it was time for me to move away from Swaram to try something else, uh, I saw this job hiring. Uh, I thought, why not? Uh, essentially sending my CV, apply for it, and they cooked me up for an interview, and I had, we had a good chat. And honestly, initially, I was going to say no. Uh, as interesting as the position felt, the kind of project framework they gave me for the year looks uh, let's just say not very nice, or at least not something that I can I, I can see eye to eye or think that this is workable. So I initially mm-hmm. said no, uh, and the directors and their board members kind of called me and had a long chat with me trying to explain to me what their visions were for the next three, four years kind of thing and what they wanted for the organization in the long term. Because um, at that point of time, AppPen has been very short term. Whenever there's a small project, they'll go for two years with a coordinator and after that, a coordinator will leave and it'll go inactive for another two more years and then it restarts again. So uh, I guess they make a very compelling pitch because eventually I said yes. Uh, and next year, you know, I'm the executive coordinator at AppPad. Um, what do I do is a bit more of an interesting thing. So officially, I think my job scope mandate is quite clear. We work with our membership. We serve our members. Uh, but in practice, that becomes a bit more murkier because what does it mean to serve a membership, right? Uh, do I just sit there and just wait for people to say something to me? Or do I organize meeting? Do I organize discussion? What do mm. I do? Um, so while we explore that and kind of talk to our members to really figure out what do you need, what would you like to see from us and things like that, we kind of worked out, okay, there are some what we call synergy between different countries. Like for example, one of those things we're exploring right now with our members, uh, like our colleagues in Taiwan, they work a lot closely with victims of uh, uh, murder victims, assault victims, people who traditionally you have viewed as people who want the death penalty. Uh, but in this case, they're actually supporting abolition of the death penalty. Uh, we spoke to our colleagues in in, in uh, Indonesia who kind of works on a different perspective. They're working with those on the death row, but they're working on stigmatization of those people. 
So, you know, it's like we talk to them differently and then we realize, hey, there's actually some degree of synergy that, you know, what both of you are doing can actually be tied in together and then we kind of start picking up them for a meeting. Um, So in some meetings, funnily enough, we just essentially become a a bridge and a translator to some extent. Uh, Being in Malaysia, we actually, funnily enough, cover a lot of the Asia-Pacific language, right? I mean, I don't speak Tamil, but it's possible for us to find someone that speaks Tamil, English, Malay. Mm -hmm. And you can find someone that speaks Mandarin, English, Malay. And Mm -hmm. think, think about it, between Indonesia and Taiwan, you can kind of already bridge a conversation. So yeah. there, are, there, there are things like that that we do. Um, and, and nowadays, uh, because we realized when, when Nagendran's execution was announced last year, we, we realized there wasn't really a lot of concerted effort to kind of bring up the issue in Malaysia like in the past. Uh, and some of my team members, we had a quick chat. We decided rather than just sitting silent and trying to work on our regional perspective, we are based in KL, we are based in Malaysia, we are Malaysians. And to us, it would be quite... Uh, it will be quite, it, it doesn't seem right with us to say, you know, we're working on death penalty across Asia Pacific, but then in our own home country where we are headquartered, where we are registered as an entity, we just sit quietly hoping that someone in Malaysia will take it up. So we decided, you know what, let's just do something. Um, and that snowballed until where we are today. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Now, why is this cause important to you? And I'm specifically talking about um, um, the abolition of the death penalty because um, you said you were in Swaram, you are clearly passionate about. Um, let's say, human rights uh, and social justice, which I will, perhaps we can dive into just a little bit later. But why is the cause um, abolition of the death penalty specifically important to you? Um, I think part of my current interest, so to speak, is I think partly attributable to Dato Vitelius' good work in 2018. When I was a storm at the point of time, uh, government announced the abolition of the death penalty was on the table. Uh, he took a lot of personal interest and advocacy around it. And initially, for, for me, I was quite skeptical. Five years in Swaram, the one thing you learn about ministers and government is you be very skeptical about them. Um, but working quite closely with his office, we kind of realized that he was quite sincere and very genuine about it in more ways than one. And a lot of the political things that happened between 2018 and 2020, uh, eh, we don't have to say much, right? There's an active political campaign against the whole, whole business led by political parties, not, not even a, a, a civil dissatisfaction with government policies outright as a political mobilization. Um, and to me, that left a very bad taste in my mouth. Right. Uh, because coming from an NGO perspective, for once we had a government that's willing to engage, to listen, uh, there was a political campaign that ran behind going against that. And as NGO at that point of time, if I'm very frank about our own assessment, we didn't do enough. There were some things we took for granted. Uh, there are some things that we just presume people will understand. There are some things we just presume like, oh, a minister said it, there'll be good coverage of it, it's fine. So there's kind of a lot of shortfall of, of what we did in campaigning back in 2018 to 2019, give or take. And to me, when I, when I left Saram and when this opportunity came up, my thought was like, yeah, this might be a chance for a bit of redemption, a chance to kind of relook at how we approach the issue of death penalty and how we can fix it. Um, I mean, that's kind of one of the motivation. But what really, I think, let's just say, you know, sounds in my heart in a sense. Um, death penalty is a very niche issue in more ways than one, right? It's, mm-hmm. It doesn't happen to a lot of people. It's a very small minority of people when compared to, like, say, police brutality or torture in custody or things like that. It's, it affects a very small number of people in most countries. Malaysia actually is one of the outliers in the sense that disproportionately we have a very high number of death row inmates. But even then, it affects a very small group of people. I think on Malaysia average, I could be wrong with the numbers, but on average, I think we have at least 30,000 drug offense-related arrests a year. And technically, you only have like a hundred of them that is something that's more serious like trafficking that ends up on the death row. Right. And when you look at it, they don't exist in the void. 
right? They don't suddenly have a perfect police system, a judiciary system, or a perfect public prosecution that handles their case, that there's no doubt that things are okay with their case. They have the same issue of torture and custody. They have the same issue that public prosecution itself may not be very, let's just say, uh, competent. Defense counsel that they are afforded may not also be the best that they can they can have due to costs or other restrictions. Uh, the judiciary, as usual, judges are still human. They don't suddenly become superhuman during a death penalty trial. All these factors are still there. And they're on death row and their life is at, on the line officially. It's not like custodial death where someone gets tortured and, and usually it's an accident that someone died. No one intentionally murdered someone in custody, at least from what I can tell. But in death penalty, you know, you set the stage for a state to actually want to take a step to kill someone, actively wanting to kill someone and end their life. So when I look at it, to me, in my heart, yeah, this is something that, that's worth working for. Um, the payoff, in a sense, is also very satisfactory in the sense that when you do have a good advocacy or a good case, and when they, when they do get clemency or get spared from the death penalty, it's a life saved. Um, and I think that, that that strikes humans in very emotional ways that's quite positive and it works out well. Now, you know, when exactly did you Dobby, develop a passion for social justice? Was it something your parents talked about when you were growing up? Um, or, or was it something else? Uh, was there like a particular moment that propelled you in this direction? Uh, if I have to put like my thumb right to it, I blame mm-hmm. it on one of my, my, my very close friend from high school. Uh, right. When we were like from four, 16 years old, the guy suddenly somehow managed to get uh, Dr. Kwa Kya-Song's book on May 13th. And he was like asking me to read it. You must read it. You must read it. I'm like, okay, sure, I'll read it. <laughs> I read it. It was like, oh, this is very intriguing. This is a very different side of Malaysian political history that you don't learn in school, right? And unless you really make a way out or you have parents that really talk about this kind of thing, you won't hear about it. Um, and my family, not to say they are very afraid or intimidated by things, but it's just the pervasive culture of you know, spending their adult life doing before Masi, with the ops and everything like that. Political discourse at home is not something that commonly happens. Uh, and it's somewhat further reinforced because my, 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 one side of my parents, thankfully, they're not from Malaysia and they have a long history of political refugee from bouncing from one country to another country to Mal- all the way to Malaysia after marriage kind of thing. So, you know, talking about politics and, and the things that are tied to it, like human rights, welfare and things like that, it's not something that comes naturally. So it's really that book that exposed me and kind of just set in my mind somewhere that, oh, there's actually more to this whole politics, uh, civil rights and things like that in Malaysia. Um, and that kind of just set me on a track when I did my, when I finished my undergraduate in law, I was kind of looking at what I want to do. I know for sure I know the practice with all the love right. of my lawyers, the profession is not for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why do you say that profession is not for you? Okay, I don't have to say I'm a stupid kid or a smart kid because I went up to all my lecturers in law school and there was about 18 of them in total from my pre-university to graduation. Right. And I kind of just asked all of them. Sir, ma'am, why are you not practicing? Why are you sitting here teaching us when half the class is not interested in the same to you? Um, and only two of them, only two of them told me that practicing is great and they're still practicing. Right. And then when I asked people like, what, what do you do as a practice? So one of them is actually, uh, he runs his own firm with a partner. And he don't really do any legal work anymore. He mostly goes source client, take up client, uh, kind of, you know, essentially seal the deal rather than doing the legal work. The right. other guy, it's like a part-time consultant where he just essentially advises people on law. He doesn't practice himself. Hmm. And, and when I sat down after my graduation, I look at it, of all the lecturers I asked, half of them is traumatized by the legal profession. Other half just say it's not for them. And the only two guys that say that practice is great doesn't practice. So I took the hit. 
yeah, and and you, you know you meet some actors that you really like, and you mm-hmm. you really understand how they think, and you can find some similarity in how you think, and then when you realize that they didn't find it satisfying to them, then you just kind of start reflecting: would it be satisfying right. to me? So that's kind of where it got me off a different tangent. Mm-hmm. So what happened then after you you realize that you know law is not something you want to practice? Um, then what what next? Uh, so this is where Asian parents is finally beneficial for me. In my, life. <laughs> uh, my mother is actually just said, if you come out like this, with just undergraduate law, you don't want to practice. Your career option is like this. You know, why not just go to a master's? We can afford it, and you're already studying on the training program. Just you're already there. Just go find a master's in some university and do it, like. So I did a quick Google around, see what university that's likely I can apply to in a very short notice and get in. And the subject I have to charge, right? It's either international corporate law, uh, like trade laws and things like that, or human rights. Um, I almost found my human rights in my undergraduate, mind you. So I decided, okay, I almost flunk it. Let's go see what it's all about and just sign on to one course. And next right. year I wrote and here I am. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So... Let's hone in on the death penalty in particular because um, that's what your current work revolves around. Why do you think the death penalty should be abolished? The quick answer is I don't think a state should have such a power to decide whether a person leave or die, um, mm. especially in a context where the death is unnecessary. State having power itself is already something that shouldn't just be accepted as this is fine. And when they have something that's so fundamental depriving you of your life itself, I don't think any state should have that power. That's the quick, short answer. Right. Um, the slightly longer answer is it's, it's, manifest, it's a manifest injustice in my eyes. Uh, people will say the death penalty is good, you're punishing murderers, if you take a life, you should pay with your life, and all the kind of fancy things they like to say. But when I look at death penalty, what I see is usually someone who's poor. More often than not, they are very, very poor socioeconomic background. And prison department actually released the data like a few years ago. Well, government released the data a few years ago. And you can kind of see how many white-collar professionals are there on that floor. I think there are like five of them um, out of like 1,200 plus people at that point. It's usually the poor people who do not really have a fixed job. They are forced to turn to crime or they are forced to get drug meals or people who have other pre-existing conditions like mental health issues. Uh, they didn't have to snap during some argument conversation and results in murder or the death of a person. And when people say, you know, death penalty is justice, they don't really see these are the people they're executing. And used to be, I thought, okay, this is just a moral question. People agree with a moral question that taking a life is wrong, and people agree with it. And then working on death penalty, I realized that there's this whole beautiful image of death penalty that has been cultivated by years of justice power on Chinese TV, <laughs> by all the all the dramas we see where, you know, people kill the bad guy, right? Right. Um, that people have this idealized view that the death penalty works, it kills the bad guy, and bad guy is dead, everyone celebrates. They don't see the kind of human impact that it has behind the scene. And I think mm-hmm. even now when you look at Nagendran's case, um, that and the case of Sabah a while ago, those are kind of outliers in the sense that even though there was no explicit intention by the media to portray those cases in a very humane or human way, that they don't really tell you about their life and things like that, but just the nature of the story and how it came out itself, people kind of realize that, oh, this is a person. We are trying to kill the person, and the person may not even be what we call fit for execution, for lack of a better word, because they may have diminished intellectual capacity, or this person might have no choice. The kind of human aspect that we, everyone that go around, we realize, yeah, I've done nasty things in my life, one way or another, and I don't like that, right? I don't have a choice, but I have to do that. Like, something you have to cheat in your exam, for example. 
you don't want to cheat for fun, right? You cheat because you're desperate, you, you want to get a solution to your problem and you may not be thinking straight. And suddenly people start realizing, oh yeah, it's not that easy. Um, so there's all these kind of things that, that, that just to me, when I look at it, it's like, yeah, this is something that I really want to see whether I can challenge because to me, definitely, like I say, it's very niche, but at the same time, it's a very extreme issue. And if you can make headways in a very extreme issue, um, back in my mind, can I translate this, this to other human rights I will perceive? Is there a way to use the kind of idea, technique, strategy that we did to engage people and bring it down to a lower level that can be used more broadly for just political awareness, civil awareness and things like that? On the show with me today is Dobby Chu, Executive Coordinator at the Anti-Death Penalty Asian Network, ATPAN. After the break, I ask him if the death penalty is a good crime deterrent. Keep it here on Good Things, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things. I'm Dashan Johan and on the show with me today is Dobby Chu, Executive Coordinator at the Anti-Death Penalty Asia Network, ATPAN. So, Dobby, you brought up the word crime and you also talked about how, you know, in, in a lot of um, TV shows, they're just like, okay, we're going to kill the bad guy and everybody celebrates. What is your philosophy or your perspective of crime? And what is it that you think the masses may not understand when it comes to crime? Um, I think the bigger part is people tend to associate crime with very specific things and based on their own experience, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if you go out right now and you tell people, if you're at school, you tell people about crime, people might be thinking gangster because that's what teachers always say. Don't join, don't be a gangster, don't be a thug and things like that. If you go to a different community, you'll mean different things. And to me, that's very important for people to kind of stop and think a bit, what do they think of when they say crime, right? Because most of the time, when you look at crime that happens that people will really see, like uh, break-ins, pickpocketing, uh, grab and run, and things like that, those are economic crimes. Those are driven by economic factors. Of course, there will also be the counter sentiment and say, oh, no, these are usually drug addicts and they want to drug money and things like that. But this is actually crime motivated by money. There's a shortage of money that they can't do what they need. Um, like when I was in Swarov, I've seen cases where <clears throat> a guy was known to be a serial mugger. He mugs people with a fruit knife and he's not shy about it <laughs> essentially admitted to it but in his case his family's of time person with his parents and everything stays in like a small ppr apartment of one room he has no way to find a proper employment and the 50 ringgit he grabbed from people in this kind of you know his nightly activities is what keeps his family going <laughs> so right. when you look at that is that a crime or is that just a failure of the system to kind of really provide for someone who needs financial aid or needs a way to improve their life so it's, it's the kind of thing where you start really breaking down what do you mean by crime, what does people see as crime, why do they happen, and then suddenly you realize it's not as easy. You know? It's not something that you should see, oh, you stole something, you must go to jail. And mm-hmm. I think, and, the, yeah. Yeah, and, and this, you know, even you, you, you brought about the, the, this idea of this whole poverty issue, right? Um, um, how like this man who was living in one room um, with many children and, and all, and, and it was a failure of the system. Would you attribute the same thing to even when it comes to drug mules? Because um, like in the case of Nagin and, and many other people who are on death row, they are all drug mules um, and, and not, you know, big Pablo Escobar, uh, drug lords or, or, or things like that. So a lot of the cases we see, especially those kind of cross-border trafficking, they are people who are migrant focused or people who are scammed into being migrant workers or people who have lost their job as migrant workers. Like a lot of the Malaysian on death row in Singapore, when you look back at their story, right, 
it's very consistent. You know? They all left their home because they couldn't find job in their hometown. In Nagan's case, he was in Ipo. In some other cases, he's like a more rural part of Johor and things like that. So to them, they found Singapore as a good, easy way for them to do manual labor work and pays well enough that they can take care of themselves and their family. And, you know, 100,000, 500,000 Malaysians do that every day, right? It's just a different profession, but essentially the same idea. We want to make good money in Singapore and bring it home so that we can take care of ourselves, our family. But problem is, when you work in a white-collar job, you lose your job. Finding a next job, unless there's problem with your background and things like that, it's relatively easy. But when you work in a manual labor condition, when you lose a job, you don't really have a big lifeline to say, I can fall back on my saving and things like that. You desperately need a next job. And life is not that kind to say, oh, you lost your job, right? Let's calm down a bit. I'm not going to mess with your life right now. For all you know, when you lose your job, your parents get cancer or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. It's never perfect. There's always things that's kicking in your life. And a lot of these people, when you look at their histories, they lost their job. They're just trying to find a job. Someone hooked them up and say, hey, come, bro, I bring you for a drink. Let's talk a bit. Like, don't need to think about your life. Let's just have a drink on my, on my tree. And they'll chit-chat, they'll have a few drinks. And next thing you know, the guy is like, hey, actually, you still got your, your, your things to go into Singapore, right? So I, I need a package to help send to my friend. Can you help? And most of the time, these people, they'll be like, okay, what's the package about? How much can you pay me for it? And sometimes they'll inquire more about it because they're a bit smarter than that. And sometimes they don't because they just thought, okay, like, whatever, like, this brother juggle me, I might as well just help him back, I think. And, and they just go on and do it. And next thing you know, they get arrested. And next thing you know, they are, they, are, they are drug mule in Singapore. And it's not always so black and white that the person knows what they're carrying in. Like we had, not to say very funny, but this amusing-ish case uh, of this Chinese guy on death row in, in Singapore, Malaysian also. He bought in heroin and heroin powder, uh, contrary to popular belief in Mandarin, where they like to say this kind of, this kind of drug is white powders. <laughs> heroin is brown. Right. So in his mind that this was probably some kind of medicinal drug, but it was not something like heroin. Because in his mind, the usual thing is drugs are white. It's a white powdery substance, not a brown powdery right. substance. So he said, he, he, his defense was that I really didn't know. And to me, when I first read it, I was like, wow, that's a really, you know, how can you not know that? I realized, oh, if he only speaks Mandarin and he's not very well educated and he doesn't really have a good understanding of what drugs are, his first mental image probably is drugs are white. Because that's what we usually call it in Mandarin, white powder. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's small things like this that, that you know not everyone has a slightly different story but it all follow the same trend I lost my job in Singapore someone approached me someone offered me drinks or they took care of me for a few days or a few weeks they gave me some money next thing you know they asked me to help bring a package in the guy has taken care of me why not sometimes the guys is, the person is smarter they realise realize, yeah this is not right but then there's a coercion there uh, drug traffickers are not known to be the most benevolent human threat and violence is part of their modus operandi <laughs> Um, like in Nagin's case, right, he was, his situation or his disability makes him a bit more vulnerable to, to being tricked by people, essentially. Absolutely. And his capacity to trust and know what people's intention for him are also very different from uh, us, uh, 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 not, not a person in his position. So they use a mix of threats and, and, you know, honey words to say, you know, we'll take care of you, we'll pay for your things. And yeah, he just does it. Does he really fully understand that? Probably not. So... Those are the kind of stories we receive. So when you look at it, it's like, is it an issue of economy that drove them to it? Probably. If you can give them a comfortable job that pays them 3,000 ringgit a, a month in Malaysia, in their hometown, they can work an honest living. I don't think they want to run drugs for like 500 ringgit and then get arrested and face a death penalty. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But, Dobby, looking around Asia, since you work for the Anti-Death Penalty Asia Network, 
do you does the do the masses share your views on the death penalty? What is the opinion of the wider Asian masses on the death penalty? Very, very. Um, if you go to some place like Korea or Japan, they don't discuss it as much, from what I can tell. Uh, they could discuss it more in their own language, but it's just not really well covered. And even the way government conducts the death penalty itself, like South Korea hasn't had execution in a very long time. Japan does execution routinely once a year, like clockwork, but there was never like any reason why they're executing this person or, or, or why this is happening now. It's really like, oh, we got the death penalty, we should use it once a while to remind people we have that. Right. Uh, when you go to Indonesia, it's an election gimmick somewhat. When it's close to election of a new president, the guy will need to show that he's strong, he's tough on crimes, and then you have few executions, like when Jokowi was first elected. And after that, you notice there was no execution in Indonesia for the last four or five years, easily. Uh, you have India that, that, that has a relatively small death row inmate uh, number compared to their population size. And it's usually for very messed up cases where they really pursue execution. And even then, they only really executed a handful of people in the last five to ten years, give or take. Uh, but then you have the countries like Singapore, who is an outlier even beyond the more authoritarian regime like China or, or Vietnam. Where China or Vietnam, we have seen discussion or conversation between their own borders saying that, yeah, let's relook at the death penalty. It may not be the best justice mechanism we have. Let's kind of scale it down. So they are introducing reforms here and there, like uh, women, pregnant women cannot be executed, person of both age cannot be executed, person with disability cannot be executed. They slowly start integrating this thing into their law. Where Singapore is going on a different tangent and saying that we must execute because this protects our national security. So you kind of have that that that, that weird divide somewhat. Um, and some of it is political, some of it is cultural because people there just believe this works, so they didn't really challenge it. Um, but even then, I would say most people believe in the death penalty, but it's really from a context that they've never seen anything else. Um, because on far end, you have countries that want to reintroduce the death penalty, and on some end also you realize you have can- countries like Cambodia which has abolished the death penalty after their uh, civil war. And even though the government is very, very, let's just say not very democratic, right? Mm-hmm. They haven't reintroduced the death penalty. Uh, Philippines, from a people power uprising, removed the death penalty from their law, reintroduced it and removed it again. And right now, it doesn't seem to be wanting to reintroduce it anymore after the day. So you kind of see the interesting trajectory. Like some country, they, they use the death penalty as political tool, but fundamentally they know, or at least the politically political elite know that this is not necessarily a good thing and they don't get into it at all and they don't find a need to get into it. Right, and and that's what I want to ask, right? Because listening to you speak, um, I get the, 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 the feeling that, like you said, the political elite um, that, and, and so on and so forth, they know um, that death penalty is not a good crime deterrent or, or it's, it's not, it doesn't actually accomplish the objectives that um, it, it is said that it, it, it's gonna that, that that's the, the the goals right doesn't uh, uh, achieve those objectives, but yet it is used more as a political sort of um, weapon rather than anything based on on actual facts or stats. Would you say that that is a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. When we talk about death penalty, abolition death penalty, when we look at Singapore, and Singapore is a prime example because they actually publicly go defend their position on the international arena. Right. They don't go along this line to say, you know, uh, we believe death penalty because public wants it. They'll go and say, because our national security hinges on it, because when we have death penalty, drug trafficking reduced by how many percent, things like that. Any smart person that can do math or look at the statistics and realize it's mostly hogwash. 
<laughs> it's enough to convince the masses that this is working. And when you look at the survey, like in death penalty, like Malaysia, we don't really have that kind of activated campaign for most part by the government. So when you do a public survey, which was done, I think the last one was like 2018, by, actually by the center, uh, KJ's think tank. Right. Uh, Public sentiment was there more for retribution perspective. They kind of say, if you take a life, you should pay with your life. That was mostly the kind of context for it. Whereas you look at Singapore, it's not about retribution, it's about deterrence. Right. And, and, and yeah, so it's yeah. a bit interesting in that sense. Yeah, and it is interesting. And and so, you know, you, you say that in Singapore, it's not about retribution necessarily, it's about deterrence. That means the whether it's the masses or the political elite, uh, they are firmly in belief that uh, they firmly believe that this is a good crime deterrent and in fact that is so a lot of people when i talk to just general regular people not necessarily people who are on twitter you know getting into these sorts of debates all day just regular people and they, they, a lot of people say that you know it you know, if, if you if you don't have uh, if you don't have the death penalty, your your drug trafficking is gonna increase like crazy. If you don't have death penalty, people are gonna start murdering each other more or raping people more or things like that. You know, like like these sorts of things. Like crime is gonna spike. Is there any truth to this sentiment that that the death penalty is a good crime deterrent? So I've actually seen people, especially during forum, that people that approach us and say, you know, if you don't have death penalty, murder is, murderers are going to run rampant. They're going to kill people everywhere. And the first thing I do usually is I back off three steps from the person. Because to me, <laughs> how you view the world is a reflection of yourself, right? Right. Absolutely. So if you think there's no death penalty and immediately someone's going to go on a stabbing spree, back of my mind is wondering, oh God, is that what's stopping you from stabbing me right now? That that's the death penalty just so I don't do it. But on a more serious note, I think... There's enough examples to show that it doesn't work or it doesn't really matter in a sense. Um, US is always very controversial on this, but it's always a good benchmark because they have some states with a death penalty, some states without a death penalty. You have states that have abolished the death penalty and murder and crime rate actually went down. But even then, you know, people who are supporting abolition will not say that this is directly related, but it's just more when you have an awareness that the death penalty doesn't solve problem, you start introducing other crime prevention measures like uh, poverty mitigation, or better security or better patrols, crime goes down because of it, not because of that penalty. And when you look at, you know, deterrence, Philippines is a good example. Duterte has been going on this tangent trial, his whole presidency that drug traffickers must die, people get gunned down in the open, right. their bodies get littered around. Did the drug problem get get addressed? No, not at all. Um, and I think Professor Wigner from USM gives a very good 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 um, background to this when, when we interviewed him not too long ago. It's crime of economy, right? If you kill the brother who is selling the drugs to make money for the, for the family, the younger brother is going to step into the shoe and say, yeah, I need to feed the family. It's my turn to do it. So it, it just continues. And to me right now, the best one is actually just let Malaysia remind himself. We have moratorium since 2018. We have moratorium for drug traffickers uh, execution since 2014, 2013. It's been almost four full years we have not executed a single person. Has our murder rate gone up? Has our drug trafficking rate gone extraordinarily high? It hasn't. It hasn't really changed at all, right? Mm. And I think that's the biggest answer to whether the death penalty works. If you have a moratorium, we have no execution, everyone knows that there's no execution, and things are still the same. What then? Right? Do you bring it back? Or right. do you just say, yeah, it doesn't work. Let's go on with our life. Right. Now, the problem is that a lot of people, like I said, you know, they may... They, they are under the impression that um, 
you know, the death penalty is a, is a good crime deterrent and, and, and so on and so forth. Like you said, for some people, it's about retribution and eye for an eye and, and all of that. What are some of the programs that AdPen runs to educate the masses about these things? So right now, we are focusing on two approaches. One is really to take up good cases and to really show people how the death penalty is flawed. Like Nagindran's case was, uh, even though the campaign, of course, was not enough to convince Singapore to not execute, I think it really gave public a very different perspective of what death penalty is. It really ruined the perfect veneer that people have the death penalty, that this is a good tool to combat bad people. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to find cases like this where there are a lot of fundamental flaws leading to them to be on death row. Like in Malaysia, we have this case of Maitan. Uh, the guy was you know, convicted for murder, on death row for murder, but the guy he allegedly murdered is still alive and actually signed an affidavit to say, I was not murdered, I'm alive. Um, cases like this, I think is what we, we really want to push for the public to really let people know. These are cases that happens on the death penalty. And it is not even a small minority because we just randomly fish and we can find five, six, seven, eight. Uh, and this is what actually happens. Do you want the death penalty? Do you want this person to die knowing all these circumstances? And most people are rational people well, most people are emotional people, but when you look at this, they will kind of back down a bit. Second part is we really want to humanize the conversation uh, because state reporting on death penalty is always, always very easy. We are convicted a, a drug trafficker, we convicted a murderer, they are to be sentenced to hanging. But what we really want to be able to tell people is we want to work with family members of death row inmates to really be able to point out the story. How did they get in this situation? Did they have a mental health issue? If they had, what was their life like? What got them into that position? Was this something that can be avoided or prevented? Or is this something that, you know, life happens sometimes and things go wrong? Or if it's drug trafficking, is there a story why he was involved in the drug trafficking? Was there a reason why he's exploited? And what we really want to do is be, let the family be able to tell the story themselves. Let people see that how life is not fair. Everyone knows that, but people don't really understand it sometimes. Life is not fair. People get into trouble. Is it worth for them to pay with their life for something they have no choice over or no control over in the greater scheme of things? And I think having that conversation is what's really going to change people's mind over time. Um, there's no easy way about it, unfortunately. So, um, apart from one of the most high-profile cases recently was um, Nagindran Dharmalingam, who was a Malaysian, and despite um, public pushback, despite he, you know his mental condition being highlighted, um, the, the the IQ being uh, his IQ being only of sixty-nine and, and things like that. Um, the Singapore Singapore still executed him. Um, and then we have another case, um, Dachinamuti Kateya. His, uh, initially, he was, uh, the outcome of his hearing was supposed to be a, a, a day or a couple of days after Nagin was executed. Yep. Um, but then they pushed it back to 20th of May. Um, what are your thoughts on this particular case and are, are there any updates on that front? So this particular case, in terms of update, that's the good part. He has a lot more time now. Uh, not well, not a lot. But his hearing has been postponed or extended a little bit to July. So he still has an active hearing going on. Which makes it even more egregious that he was on the death row ready to be executed just a few weeks ago. He still right. has an outstanding case and it's a substantial case. It's not a case where I say, oh, technically you cannot hang someone because the news is bad. But it's something that, that involves the prison department where who is, you know, essentially the one that's controlling their life in prison leaking their private correspondence with lawyers to the public prosecutor. Now, where does right. this matter? I'll just give an example. 
one of your 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 substantive assistance to, for you to be granted a, a certificate of assistance by the prosecution in Singapore is you provide good information leading to arrest. Right. During your trial, if you're in prison and you don't want to incriminate yourself and discuss with your lawyer, actually, if it comes to the stage, I can and am willing to provide information about these people, but I want protection of which are this, whatever it is. What if the prison department gave this letter to the public prosecution? Public prosecution look at it. Oh, so this is the fellow. Goes and arrest the fellow and come and say, hey, actually, your evidence is not helpful because I already found the person. How then, right? right. Um, so, yeah. I mean, that's, that's not, I'm not saying that's what happened to Dutch's case, but that is a possibity because you are leaking, or at least the prison is leaking a, a confidential document, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So that is the challenge that's outstanding right now. And when we look at the last challenge uh, filed by his mother, and then he filed by himself, not his mother, uh, filed by himself, the judges actually made the same indication that this is a very serious issue and he should have his hearing and in case the court needs him to answer for any testimony he needs to be allowed to do so and to me that's very egregious because the public prosecution knowing that it's a trial coming is of course the person that is being contested in the trial itself because they were the one that received the letter from prison and they insist on killing or executing dachi why no one knows and it goes to the point that the judge itself has to go like, how are you going to account for it if he's dead because you executed him and I and the court needs him for testimony? What then? The public prosecution can't answer and they still insist on it. And they even appealed it after the initial motion was uh, accepted by the court. So it's a bit messed up, right? How can you hang someone when they still Absolutely, have a legal yeah. process going on? Uh, yes, it's, it's, it's all a big... Uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot of layers to this which, yeah, which thankfully... You know, he still has some time to present his case and, and hopefully for once we get some good news coming out of Singapore. Now, uh, what is um, AdPen's efforts in this case? Um, are you all working with different um, commu- different communities, different lawyers and all to, to try and uh, raise awareness on this particular case? So we're trying our best to work with our members on the ground in Singapore uh, mm-hmm. and the, mem- the family members are, of course, based in, in, in Malaysia. So we try to help them as much as we can when we can. Uh, we have very limited resources and we are based in chaos, so sometimes it's not, we can't do it as well as we like it to be. That's the sad reality of it. But on our side, I think what we really want to do also is to really work with Malaysian government to address this issue. Because these are drug trafficking cases and these are drug news. They are not the drug laws. If they are a drug law, yeah, they still shouldn't hang, but you know, that's a very different context of discussion. But they are drug news and logic dictates if there's someone receiving them in Singapore, there's someone sending them up in, in Malaysia side. If both government in Malaysia and Singapore is genuine about tackling the drug, tackling the drug trafficking issue, that's where they need to start. Rather than executing these people who are essentially exploited by these drug trafficking syndicates, use them as witness to identify who the syndicates are, work out their operations and target them and bring them to bring them to justice, right? And Singapore clearly doesn't care to do so, from what we can tell. But Malaysian side, we still have the opportunity to do so. Uh, like Dachinamuti, he may have been a witness to, to some of the trafficking syndicate member who recruited him. Like other cases, like Pani Selvam, same thing. He could have been a witness to the person in Malaysia. So what is Malaysia government going to do next? Are they going to try and bring them back as witness to testify? There has been precedent mm. like this happening between Philippines and Indonesia. And we should also look to the same. Because it's in our interest to stop the trafficking syndicate in Malaysia. At the same time, it is also in our interest to make sure Malaysia don't hang for very stupid reasons like this. So... Yeah, I guess that's that's the big one we are going to tackle next right. to see if Malaysian government can look at it from that perspective and work with us on it. Before we wrap this conversation up, Dobby, um, would you have a final message for us and perhaps uh, your hope for the future when it comes to the death penalty? 
Well, I hope people will just be less of an armchair general on Twitter just calling someone to be hanged or say someone deserves to die. Because if you meet someone in a cafe or in a coffee shop or in a mama, would it be okay or acceptable to say this person must die? It's not, right? You, you give the person a very funny look. Everyone will give the person a funny look because that person is calling for violence against another. And same thing, I think, when we go to online conversation, I pray, it's never going to happen probably, but I pray that people have a bit more decorum about it, understand, yeah, it's a 140 character or 280 character tweet for them, but it's a life on the other end of, this, on, on, of the equation. And what they say, for all we know, could help drive sentiments toward a guy's life ending for very stupid reasons. Is that where we want to stand like in the balance of life, right? This is what I do in my life, getting someone killed. On that note, thank you so much for speaking with me today, Dobby. Thank you for having me on the show. That was Dobby Chu, is the executive coordinator at the Anti-Death Penalty Asia Network at Penn. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashran Johan, and this has been Good Things, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.